All right, all right. Good morning, guys. Go ahead and wrap up that conversation. Grab a seat. So great to hear so much awesome conversation happening on this fine Sunday morning. You see that four-minute conversation, it's pretty great. You know, it's pretty great. Love the four-minute conversation. Well, welcome. Um, my name's Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here. If you brought your Bible, go ahead and pull that out. We use those every Sunday. Open up to Psalm 89. Psalm 89 is where we're going to be. The Psalms is a, a book of 150 prayers uh, that the, the Hebrews prayed, and so they take up a lot of space in the Bible. So if you just open up to the middle and start flipping around, you're sure to hit the book of Psalms pretty quickly. So, and when you do, get to 89. Turn over to Psalm 89. That's where we're going to be working from today. Um, well, um, we are in our summer sermon series right now, continuing through the book of Psalms. Um, and this summer, we have selected Psalms that highlight different attributes or different aspects of who God is. That, that, that's his character. So, so each Psalm we're looking at, and we, we've selected Psalms that highlight different parts of his character. So we started with God's goodness and holiness. And then last week, Dave uh, dove into God's mercy and his grace in Psalm 6 and how we have access to God's mercy and his grace through a door called repentance. That's what Dave preached on last week. Um, and even though repentance has a cost, you know, repentance can be hard and even scary. It unlocks the door to God's mercy and grace, which leads to incredible joy. Incredible joy. You know, like, Repentance is that which transitions us from uh, being at odds with God's justice to experiencing his mercy. And Dave preached on that last week. And so if you weren't here, you can go listen to it. Go, go give it a listen. Um, it was great. Um, and today we dive into Psalm 89 together. And Psalm 89 is about God's love, his faithful love. If you look, it's, it's the third longest psalm in the book of Psalms. We're not going to read through every verse together. But if you look at the first two verses here, you'll see it come up here. Our psalm is written by a guy named Ethan. More on him later. And, and he says this, I will sing about the Lord's faithful love forever. I will proclaim your faithfulness to all generations with my mouth. For I will declare faithful love is built up forever. You establish your faithfulness in the heavens. So, so did you see that? We have faithful love paired with faithfulness in verse 1. And then again, faithful love paired with faithfulness in verse 2. Faithful love is the Hebrew word chesed. starts with a K. Okay, so you've got to make that guttural thing. Chesed, chesed. And, and faithfulness is the Hebrew word emet. More on those later. But these are repeated, these are pulled together, and they're actually pulled together all the time in the Old Testament scriptures six times over the course of this psalm. So in verse 1, in verse 2, in verse 14, in verse 24, 43, 49. This is the big thing that our psalmist, Ethan, is talking about. The faithful love and the faithfulness of God. And so it seems that his big idea is like, hey, God is loving, God is faithful, but not so fast. Not so fast, because here's the tension with God's love and faithfulness that he's actually wrestling with. We're going to see it here in a minute. He's going to starkly illuminate for us a problem. It goes something like this. It's more and more felt now in society than ever before. Does God really love us? Does he? Do you really love me, God? Are you really faithful? Now, now there used to be a time in America's history, maybe like 1950s, 1960s, 60s, where 
you told people that God loved them, and they were like, whoa, that's great, that's amazing. The, the ministry of Billy Graham, for example, he emerged in America where, where people, they generally felt bad about their sin. And so he showed up and he said, hey, you're a sinner. And they were like, yeah, we know that. He says, but God loves you anyway. And they're like, whoa, this is amazing. Now that's a, a vast generalization of the ministry of Billy Graham, okay? But, but this, you're a sinner, God loves you, man, it, it jived with our Western society back in the middle of the 20th century. But nowadays, when we share the same message in our society, you're a sinner. People are like, eh, maybe I do a little bad stuff. But then, perhaps even more gravely or or more sadly, you you tell them, God loves you. And they're like, ah, I doubt it. I don't think so. You think God thinks about me that often? Try to tell your friends that God loves, loves them. Just see what happens. I don't know. Does he? And so that's just the non-believing world. But even in the best of scenarios, like the one we're about to read, where someone has been convinced of God's love for them in the past, like Ethan, perhaps even had incredible experiences of God's love in his life, you can't follow God for long without coming into an experience where you yourself will question God's love for you. Where you yourself will question, is this God faithful? Is this God trustworthy? And in that moment, you can decide to do one, or two, one of two things. First, you can walk away. And that can look a, a couple different ways. First, it can mean literally not engaging God anymore, not engaging his scriptures, not engaging the community of his people anymore. You know, walking away from the face. God is not loving, this loving, trustworthy being that the scriptures and these people say that he is, at least not in my life, and so I'm done. Or you can walk away in a different way, which is still kind of engage those things, but just stuff that doubt down. Just don't give it any room to breathe. Don't, don't, let, it rear, don't let it rear its perhaps ugly head. So we're asking, what happens when we doubt God's love? Because I find that all Christians go through this at several points in their lives, if they're going to be honest about it. And if we're going to grow... We need these doubts to breathe, to consider God's love, which means we need to set aside the time and the space to ask, is it true? Does God love us? Perhaps you grew up in a Christian tradition uh, that suppressed such intense questions, such intense doubts, and so even just the idea of doing that is a little bit scary to you. Like, wait a sec, we're allowed to do that? Psalm 89 says, absolutely. Absolutely, we're allowed to do that. It's safe for us here in his scriptures. Is God really loving like he says that he is? Now, one way to solve the tension quickly and simply when we really feel unloved by God is to conclude uh, that we just have too high of expectations for God or, or the wrong expectations, that we, build up, we, we built up this idea of, of his love into something that it's not. Okay, so, so for instance, in light of a disappointment, we might say something like, well, God's love is really only meant to be experienced like that at the end of time. Have you heard this? Have you said this? I've said this before. Uh, I'm just expecting too much of God right now. But actually, what I find is that most of us, most all of us, suffer from too small a vision of what God's love is, who God is, and how he breaks into our world now. And that's what our psalmist is all about highlighting for us as well. 
You see, if you were to just read this psalm, and if you're cadre met, uh, hopefully you're able to make it through all 52 verses. It's a long psalm. Um, but if you were to read the psalm and stop at verse 37, this is what you would think. Wow, what a beautiful and amazing psalm about God's love and his faithfulness to his people. What a truly incredible God this psalmist must have encountered. And many, 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 many of the psalms are like that. They just have this grand vision of who God is, and then it's over. It starts off here by proclaiming that God is loving like, like we, we read, that he's faithful, and then it ties it to the covenant of David here in verses 3 and 4. Ethan says, The Lord said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn an oath to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build up your throne for all generations. So that God is going to build up David's throne. He's really thrilled that God loves David enough to make him this big promise and swear that to him. And then in verses 5 through 15, he really waxes very beautifully, very poetically, wonderful, perfect Hebrew prose about this amazing God of power and strength, pointed to how God is powerful and good. So, so he doesn't just have the disposition to bless David and his house, but also the ability to to fulfill his promises of faithful love. Verse 14 here, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. He's talking to God. Are your throne, God? Faithful love and truth go before you. Which leads to what? Look look at what it inspires in, in the people, Ethan says. Happy are the people who know this. The joyful shout, Lord, they walk in the light from your face. He then recounts the the covenant promises that God had actually made to Abraham. He puts God in the first person. Look down at 19. So this is him. He's going to go on a a big list of everything that God had promised to David. You once spoke in a vision to your faithful ones and said, so he's saying God has said this, I have granted help to a warrior. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant. Servant, I have anointed him. With my sacred oil, my hand will always be with him. Skip down to verse 28. I will always preserve my faithful love for him, and my covenant with him will endure. I will establish his line forever. His throne will last as long as heaven lasts. If his sons abandon my instruction and do not live by my ordinances, if they dishonor my statutes and do not keep my commands, then I will call their rebellion to account with the rod. What this isn't saying is when they mess up, I'm going to abandon them. My love's going away. No, it says when they mess up, I'll, I'll discipline them like a father disciplines their loving child. So we have throughout this whole psalm incredible promises of God's love. Verse 33, but I will not withdraw my faithful love from him or betray my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or change what my lips have said. Once and for all, I have sworn an oath by my holiness. I will not lie to David. His offspring will continue forever. You see, our our psalmist has this incredible, huge view of God's love and faithfulness. We see this in the content of the psalm here. And then we really see in this word that he chooses to categorize God's love, chesed. Now, now this isn't the the, the notion of love that talks about the feeling of love. Hebrew has another word for that. It's called ahava. Ahava. Like I could say, uh, I ahava mountain biking. That's great but I would never say I said it. What does this word mean? What does this word mean? Um, it's 
really hard to translate, quite frankly. Um, some translation, like this one here, says faithful love. Um, some translate it as steadfast love, that's the ESV. Some great love, that's the NIV. Some unfailing love, that's the NLT. Um, some theologians should just call it this loyal love. What does it mean? Well, it carries a far deeper meaning than our general use of, of the word love. It, it's complex because what it's doing is it ties together the ideas of, of, of love, generosity, and enduring commitment kind of all into one. It, it describes this act of like promise-keeping, uh, a, a promise-keeping loyalty that's not motivated by what the other party can do. Okay, it's actually motivated by just personal care instead, regardless if someone really deserves it or not. That's chesed. That's, that's this love that Ethan is talking about here. So for instance, when I do a wedding, I just did one last weekend, I usually talk about this type of loyal love at some point in my homily. Now, I don't use the word chesed unless it's like a Jewish wedding. You know, I'd probably pull it out then, you know? But no, um, this is the love that says yes to, to do you take this person to be your spouse? to have them and to hold them, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, for law, as long as you both shall live. You see, that's more of the chesed. It's, it's, it's love characterized by, by enduring, generous, caring love. Uh, that level of, of commitment, regardless of the actions of the other. The helpful place where we see it in the Old Testament actually isn't in a romantic way at all. It's actually in the book of Ruth. It's in, and, and Ruth is this foreigner. She marries an Israelite man, um, and, and they're kind of this, uh, this nuclear family all on their own in, in Moab. And, and her father-in-law dies, and then her husband dies. Okay, and, and so she's, all she's, she's just left with her widowed, aging mother-in-law, Naomi, who has absolutely nothing she can give her, and that's what she says to her. She says, I have nothing to give you, Ruth. Go back to your people. But instead, Ruth promises to stay by Naomi's side and, and take care of her, which includes supporting her, is what we find out as we read through the book of Ruth, is that Ruth now has to keep, like, put food on the table for both of them. She she's, has this caring, committed actions towards Naomi, and as other people look on the situation from the outside, they describe it as an act of chesed, an act of enduring, generous, caring love, a commitment that isn't conditional or based on Naomi's worth at all or what she brings to the table. It's an expression of just Ruth's character, who she is. She's generally a, a generous, loving person who keeps her word and cares for Naomi. That's chesed, this loyal, caring type of love. And throughout the Old Testament scriptures, God is the one who shows the purest form of this, this generous, enduring, caring love, chesed. For instance, Jacob. Jacob has this kind of long life um, for a long time. His life is characterized by just deception and deviance. This is Jacob. He's, kind of, he's the grandson of Abraham, kind of the squirrely character. But God's love remains for him. He actually, in spite of all of his kind of deception and deviance, like God gives him a family, God blesses him with possessions, and eventually, after like 20 or 30 years, Jacob comes back to really admit and repent of everything that he has been like very selfish and deviant and deceptive, you know, that was like driving him. And he says this in his prayer, he says, I'm not worthy, God, of your chesed love. I'm not worthy of it. God delivering the Israelites out of Egypt is described as an act of chesed love. 
And, and when in the wilderness, when people revolted against Moses, Moses asked God to forgive the sin of the people, not because of anything they've done, but because of his great love. God's own enduring, generous, caring character, that's what he petitions God for. And God recommits to a people that aren't really committed to him. That's what you're left with at the end of Numbers 14, being like, these people haven't changed God, but your love for them remains? The Old Testament witness of God is that he's loyal and loving for no other reason than the fact that it's who he is. Of course, he wants his people to respond in chesed love to him, but even when they don't, his chesed, it just remains. It's enduring. It's always there. The the prophets of Israel frequently pointed to this dynamic in in the Israelites' uh, relationship with God. Hosea said he compared Israel's chesed to a morning mist that's there in one moment and then gone. All right, so so that's God's love, but God's remains. It's not like the morning mist. It's always referred, it's... It's likened to the sun, always there. But our, our author here, he pairs it with the word faithfulness, emet, which is really interesting because these words are paired together all the time as part of who God is. Um, they go hand in hand all the time. And that has to do with faithfulness, um, or you could say even truth. So it, it, it refers to like correct ideas, uh, correct concepts, because it has to do with like stability and reliability, like, like a rock. Like in, in the wilderness, when Israel's fighting a battle, okay, um, you, maybe you remember this, Moses has to hold up his hands, and so long as his hands are held up, the Israelites are doing great, okay? But the only problem is his arms are getting tired. And so, so what they do is they put a rock for under him so he can sit down, and then elders come on either side of Moses, and they hold his hands, and that steady, stable, secure, and, and, and so when it's used of people, it's really used to describe a reliable and stable character or, or a trustworthiness. That's probably the best translation, I think, is trustworthiness. Like when Moses appoints leaders in Israel that are to administer justice, um, he says they're to be people of emet, people who are trustworthy, that, that would not take bribes, that are steady and stable and reliable. And, and so to say that God is emet isn't, It doesn't just mean that God tells the truth or likes truth or stands for truth. It means that he can be trusted, that he's trustworthy, that what he says he will do, he will do. He's he's stable. This is where the notion of God being a rock comes from, an illustration that's used all the time in the Old Testament scriptures. Moses calls God a rock because it means that when he stands on on him, he feels secure, steady, now, now, when these are paired together, then we have an emphatic statement of God's loyal love. God promises this, has said, and he's trustworthy to fulfill it. That's, what, it's a, that, that's why these are brought together all the time. So when he says that his chesed love will never depart from the house of David, which is what the psalm repeatedly points to over and over and over again, David, 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 God's promise of the Davidic covenant from 2 Samuel 7, it won't. No matter what, God said it. He's trustworthy. You can trust him to love you. You can trust that he's stable. You can lean on him and count on his enduring, generous, caring love. It'll never go away, even though you don't really bring much to the table at all. How amazing. Even if you fall short of his commands, how amazing. See, both of these words come together to proclaim the very thing that every human being hopes is true, that there's a perfect, 
powerful person that's on our side, that we can count on to have a never-ending, generous, and caring disposition towards us. All of us hope that's true in the, deep heart, the deepest heart of hearts that we have. I'm not going to go into a full philosophical explanation of this. We don't have time for that today. Talk to Pastor Dave. He's our philosophy guy. But all of us, really deep in our core, have a hole there of, of a deep and generous person that we, that, that we hope is there to accept us. And if we were to just read the first 37 verses of this psalm, that's exactly what we would conclude. And we would say, God has incredible and intense love for us, and he promises to be generous for people, to people and care for them forever throughout their entire lives. Amen. We could wrap up our sermon quick, go home early, get the songs up here. We're not so fast. Not so fast. Here's the problem. What happened when Ethan felt abandoned? What happened when he looked for an enduring, generous, caring God, but didn't find him? Ethan is experiencing this dark tension. God, you say that you love me. You you say that you're for me. You say that you're committed to me. I read these scriptures, and there's all these grand promises of generosity and care for your people. But I don't feel it happening in my life. That's not my reality. You, you promised provision, but I lost my job. You promised life, but I feel more depressed than ever. You promised peace, but I have more anxiety than ever. You promised a caring love, but why are you so distant, God? Why have you left me? Have you ever felt this? Ethan's right there with you. We find all this flowery, grand language about God's love, about God's trustworthiness. It's just a ruse. These first 37 verses of prayer to God are, are set up. It's a ploy. It's actually all part of him voicing his frustration to God, to the fact that he doesn't feel God's chesed or met at all. He feels completely and utterly abandoned. Uh, One scholar I read this week put it this way. Starting in verse 38, our author goes for the divine jugular and doesn't let up. So let's read that together here. Verse 38, we're going to read through to the end of the chapter. But you have spurned and rejected him. Who's the him? David. You have become enraged with your anointed. You have repudiated the covenant with your servant. You have completely dishonored his crown. You have broken down all of his walls. You have reduced his fortified cities to ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become an object of ridicule to his neighbors. You have lifted high the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back his sharp sword and have not let him stand in battle. You have made his splendor cease and have overturned his throne. You have shortened the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. How long, O Lord, will you hide forever? Will your anger keep burning like fire? Remember how short my life is. Have you created everyone for nothing? What courageous person can live and never see death? Who can save himself from the power of Sheol? Lord, where are the former acts of your faithful love that you swore to David in your faithfulness? There's Hesed in Amet. Remember, Lord, the ridicule against your servants. In my heart, I carry abuse from all the peoples. How your enemies have ridiculed, Lord. How they have ridiculed every step of your anointed. And verse 52 is a later edition by the scribes. 
because this is the end of book three. At the end of each book of the Psalms, there's five of them, because you can't fit them all in one scroll. You have five scrolls. There's this blessed be the Lord forever statement. So it ends really, really dark. It ends dark. No hope. They've ridiculed us. He goes for the divine jugular. And the question is why? Well, to answer that, we have to understand who Ethan is. Who Ethan is. When King David entered Jerusalem, when the ark showed up and he dances naked in front of everybody, really fun story, you know. He appoints three worship leaders, Asaph, Heman, and Ethan. These are the three worship leaders that would be, that would characterize uh, David's uh, temple worship. Well, the temple wasn't built yet, but the, the tabernacle worship at that time, the worship of, of the Almighty. Um, Asaph has 12 psalms that are saved here in the book of Psalms. Heman has one, Psalm 88. It's actually right before this one. I think that's why they kept them together. Also very, very dark, one of the darkest psalms in the Psalter. Um, and then 89, which is Ethan, the only one we have preserved of Ethan's. And, and so we're forced to ask, like, whoa, Ethan, what went so terrible that you felt like God had completely forsaken you? Didn't you enjoy life in and around the palace and the worship sites? Like, Aren't you living off of like the, the contributions of the people of the kingdom and the riches of the kingdom here? Like, how is your life so terrible, Ethan? Well, there's one thing that happened to Ethan recorded in the scriptures. Perhaps it was this event, perhaps not. It, it doesn't really matter, but, but I'm inclined to think it is. Um, often we recount David's missteps in life that kind of have to, that lead to God's discipline of him and produces God, or David's repentance, and then God restoring David. We, we often hear those stories, but there's actually one thing that happened to David during his reign that threatened his kingdom more than any other event that happened to him, and none of it was his fault. It was when his son Absalom tried to overthrow him. And, and through a series of circumstances that weren't David's fault at all, Absalom and David, they become estranged. And, and this estrangement created a frustration within Absalom that it got to the point where he decided he would overthrow his father's throne. This is all in 1 Samuel 12 through 19. And so he manipulated the people of power from all over Israel as they would visit Jerusalem. He would tell them like, yeah, my father David, he really doesn't have time for you or care about you and, and your troubles. If only there was a great king that cared about you and your troubles. And he did this over, over the course of months, perhaps years. And then when he felt like he had enough allegiance from enough powerful people all over the nation, he sent out messengers to say, on this day, declare that the kingdom is mine and not David's. And they all do it. They all publicly declare their allegiance to him. And, and obviously, the word comes to David pretty quickly, and David says, we have to get out of here. We have to run. If we stay around here, he's going to kill us. So he fled. He fled. Probably included his worship leaders, came with him. A lot of people came with him, priests, worship leaders. His crown was completely dishonored. His fortified cities that were meant to defend him counted for nothing. Neighboring kingdoms laughed at him. His foes rejoiced. He couldn't even fight for himself. His sword was turned back. His throne was overturned, and he was covered in shame. The picture that we have of David in this point in, the, in Samuel is him walking along the, the rocky path, barefoot, clothes torn, weeping, as people come alongside his caravan and hurl insults curses at him, ridicule him. Now, now, don't put yourself in David's shoes here. He actually writes a psalm about this whole incident. It's Psalm chapter 3. It's just a plea for help. But put yourself in Ethan's, perhaps Heman's place as well. This is what Ethan is thinking, right? 
God, you said to David that you were going to establish his throne, okay, that you were going to build his house, and you didn't say that you were just going to do it for a little while. You said forever. Forever. He repeats the word forever or always seven times in the psalm up to this point. Forever. But now it doesn't even look like it's going to last his lifetime. What's going on? He must have thought, what have you done, God? What are you doing? And in verse 38, this is the force of it. At verse 38, he starts by saying, but you have rejected him. Who is he thinking of? Saul. Saul was king, and it's very clearly God rejects Saul. So Ethan's like, is this just how you are, God? Do you make promises to people and then reject them? That doesn't sound like loyal love to me. That doesn't sound like Emmett to me. That doesn't sound like trustworthiness. Is this just who you are? I align myself with David because of what you said, and now it's all going down the drain. Why have you let this happen to us? Are you even there or what? Do we even matter to you? Do you even care? Do you even see us? This isn't a psalm of praise. It's a psalm of protest. It's a psalm of protest. Ethan is protesting that God is not showing himself for who he is. His one request in all 51 of these verses, he makes it twice there at the end. He says, remember, just remember me, God. Remember me. Remember me. You're obviously not even looking at me, my predicament. Could you just remember me? Remember us, please? Surely if you just tuned in for a second down here, God, you would act. You would act. Remember me. It's quite a demeaning request of the all-present, loving, trustworthy God of the universe. Ethan's present circumstances have caused him to lose the ability to trust a trustworthy God, which means that he can't really love a loving God either. Remind you of anyone? How about all of Israel at several points? And he's one of its worship leaders. Hardships, sufferings, they expose unbelief of our hearts. They expose the unbelief of our hearts. Um, perhaps that's, that's you even, even today. Um, if it's not today, you've, you've, perhaps you've felt this before. And if not before, well, you will feel it at some point in time in the future. Can I trust you, God? Where are you? Verse 49. Lord, where are the former acts of your faithful love? Like, I've experienced your love before, God. Where are you? What's going on here? Hardships have exposed unbelief in the heart of this worship leader. Now, they didn't create the unbelief, okay? They didn't create it. They just exposed the unbelief that was actually always there. Uh, Unbelief he would have been unaware of if everything had just been going hunky-dory in Jerusalem while he was writing songs and leading worship, you know? And this is what I love. He puts it on full display. He owns it. For 3,000 years, we've been reading about his unbelief. His one contribution to the scriptures, this is the unbelief that that was unearthed and exposed in my heart. We gotta bring our unbelief out. We gotta give it a place to to, to breathe and and to live. Don't, Don't stuff it down, don't run. He brought it to God. He leaned into the tension. If you run from unbelief, your faith can't grow. It just can't grow. Faith um, is, is a muscle, and like most muscles, you know, or like, like with everybody, like everybody's been given a different amount of faith to have, you know? And like some people bulk, bulk up really quick, like myself, you know? You know, Dave says, man, he wishes he could bulk up like me, you know? 
No, but, but faith is a very similar thing, that, that God gives all of us different amounts and different measures of faith, and the way that we actually work it out and grow our faith is by lifting our doubts to God, to lift them up to God, to our community, to sort through with it. That's actually how faith grows, is by identifying the unbelief that's been unearthed, that, that sufferings or hardships or whatever has trudged up in your life, and not shoving them back down into the soil, but bringing them up and lifting them to God, that we can wrestle with it and consider it together. What are we considering? You're considering, is it really true that God is loving in light of this thing happening? That's what we call considering. If you do that for a season, you'll notice your faith will grow and grow and grow. Paul speaks to this tension in Romans 5. We'll throw it on the screen here. Romans 5, starting in, in verse, I think we'll back up to verse 1. Says, Paul says, Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, so he's writing to Christians here, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Hallelujah. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions. Because we know that affliction produces endurance, endurance produces proven character, proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us. Why? Because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So essentially, if, if you want access to God's love again, what do you have to do? In the midst of suffering, we have to run to God, even if it's in those moments that we feel like he is the least loving being ever. I've walked through some, some people experiencing serious hardships and suffering and really wrestling with that question. My mom died. Is God still good? I've lost everything. Is God still good? Does he still love me? Does he actually think of me? Is he looking at me? And after you go through this cycle a few times, the crazy thing begins to happen that this verse alludes to. The suffering comes and you rejoice. What? Because you know that it's going to unearth that which your faith needs to grow, to find more hope, to experience more love of God. A stronger faith that can hold on to the love of God. You see, our, our faith, the measure of our faith is actually proportional to how much love of God we can hold and carry. And so when we are actually asking the question of, God, do you love me? We're actually working out that very muscle that needs to develop in order to carry more of God's love. But unbelief that's not brought to God, that, that's allowed to fester, it makes us take up our positions against God. Ethan is going for the jugular here. But, but God's chesed remains to him. Okay, so, so let's talk about Jesus here. Let's talk about Jesus. The, the fulfillment of the Davidic promise, which is on the forefront of Ethan's mind. He's like, we're, we're living the Davidic promise. We're not seeing it come about. Jesus is the fulfillment of it. He shows up full of chesed and amet, full of this loyal love, full of trustworthiness. This is what John tells us in John chapter 1. He says this, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. Essentially, the Greek transliterations of hesed and emet. God says, 
or John says the God-man Jesus possessed this chesed and amet we, we read about in the Old Testament scriptures that was promised to us in the Old Testament scriptures. He had this enduring, generous, caring love for us, for everyone. He was completely trustworthy in everything that he said he would do. And all the truth that he gave us and everything he said we were going to do and what would happen, happens. Whenever we were with him, we felt stable. We felt secure. We knew we could count on his loyal love. We saw his caring, generous loyalty to people. It was amazing. That's what he's testifying to in John chapter 1. An enduring, generous, and caring love showed up in Christ. And Jesus showed up to a people not reciprocating it back to him, who in their unbelief, like Ethan, took up positions against him and killed him. You see how backwards Ethan got it? He thinks that God is killing him, that God is the one actually doing all of this against David. Sometimes we can conclude that God is doing all these terrible things against us, but that's unbelief. And when that unbelief persists, when God does show up, we take our position against him. Just like they killed Jesus. But Jesus's chesed remained, knowing that the loyal love of the Father was for him. So his unbelief, no unbelief in Jesus, his great faith allowed him to carry God's great love and extend it to the people. And he knew fully understand God's love, and he fully knew that God's love and death, the pinnacle of suffering, right, were not incompatible. They're not incompatible. Jesus said, it was for this purpose that I have come. The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the chief priests and teachers of the law, and he must be killed. That's that's what he said he was there to do. And in the garden, Jesus didn't cry out in unbelief, uh, how long, O Lord? No, he said, your will be done. During his beatings in the courtyard, he wasn't pleading, look, Father, they're abusing me. But he silently endured it. On the cross, when when the scribes and Pharisees were making fun of him, he didn't say, "Uh, they're ridiculing me. Look at how they're ridiculing me, God. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. From the cross, Jesus cried, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? which on the surface looks like a statement of unbelief. But in Jew- Jewish culture in the first centuries, what the, what the Jews would do is they would recite a first line of a psalm that was meant to communicate the full force of that entire psalm. And this comes from the first line of Psalm 22, which is a psalm that's all about trusting God in light of persecution. The statements about God in that psalm are of complete trust and allegiance no matter what's happening to its author. That's what Jesus was about. He knew that God's loyal love and trustworthiness were not incompatible with death. In in his trial and his death, Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of the line of David, the line of Judah, he experienced the very same things that David experienced when when David was being overthrown. Dishonor, powerless, shame, powerlessness, shame, ridicule. But I don't think he prayed verses 46 through 51. Perhaps in their own unbelief, the disciples prayed this in between death and resurrection. Perhaps those three days were dark. Perhaps they cried out to God, remember us, God. God, remember that our lives are short. Did you just waste the last three years of our life 
Are we just created for nothing? Is everything meaningless? That's actually the, the, the bend of the, this poetry here. It's very similar to that of Ecclesiastes. Why, our lives are short, God. Why are you making us spend time with this Jesus? You're just gonna bring him come to nothing. Ethan thought the same thing. My life is short, God. Why are you gonna make me spend it with this David guy if it's gonna come to nothing? If it's all gonna fall apart anyways, what's the point of this? Do you feel the unbelief? It's unbelief. But then, Resurrection. Resurrection. We might think that resurrection is a reassurance of God's loyal love and trustworthiness. It is, but it's also just the pinnacle of it. It's, it's, it's the, the purest form, the most cosmic, beautiful display and confirmation of it. With resurrection, dead things come back to life. We discover God's loyal love and, and trustworthiness is, is grander, it goes deeper, it extends further than, than we had ever imagined. There's no grave that God's love can't reach down into and resurrect, transform back into life. This is the good news. So I don't know where you're at. Perhaps you're going through a hardship right now and you're wrestling with God's love and his trustworthiness. Can I trust him right now in the midst of all of this? Lift that unbelief up to him. Lift it up to him. You will not find a more loyal or steady person that can handle it. You think it's nothing he's ever heard before? You can be intense about it. You don't have to be polite. Ethan's not being polite to God here. Bring your doubts to God, your unbelief to him. If you can do that, he will eventually pour his love into your heart. He will, and it will powerfully change your life. Perhaps you've been hiding your unbelief for some time, and and it's time to start bringing those to God. He He can handle it. He can hold them. You can trust him. When you do it, he will breathe his resurrection life into you and give you new life. Perhaps everything's going great in your life. When things change, and things surely will change, you can trust him. Bring your frustrations and your doubts to God. When you do that, he will pour his love into your heart, and it will powerfully change your life. His love and our suffering, and even our deaths, are not incompatible because this is a God who resurrects. And he can resurrect any part of your life if it seems dead. Bring it up to him. Bring your unbelief up to him. And, and because he resurrected Christ and he sent his spirit, this resurrection power is available to us all through him. If we would just be honest with him, if we would just be honest with one another with regards to where we're at and what we're feeling and what we think about God's love. Let's pray.